Episode 8, The Worst. Welcome to this week's episode of Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to examining the events of January 6, 2021 in Washington, D.C. I'm Scott Kuhn. This week, we'll be examining the defendants facing the worst allegations of violence in the Capitol insurrection. By definition, these are some of the most violent participants in the attack who have been arrested and identified to date. Now, obviously, pretrial defendants have the presumption of innocence. So when I talk about their behavior, it ought to be understood that I'm referring to the allegations contained in the charging documents and the relevant uh, information that's also in the public record. You know, try to be careful to talk about allegations in case I slip up. Again, there is a presumption of innocence here. Um, when I talk about video evidence, I'll be referring to actions that are clearly visible on the video. And again, usually with subjects who are, are known by, by authorities, and I believe everyone here has already stipulated that they are the persons uh, depicted in the video evidence. But before I do that, let's catch up a bit on some of the news related to last week's episode. I followed up on FBI Director Ray's testimony two weeks ago that hundreds more arrests would be made in the Capitol insurrection case. Now, I made some guesses about the processes and what paying careful attention to these cases can tell you about what's going on inside the investigation. So if you haven't listened to Episode 7, last week's episode, 500-plus defendants, it's a good time to do it. It's still timely. The day after I uploaded the episode, the FBI arrested 12 individuals in the Capitol insurrection, which was the most for a single day in quite some time. They also cleared four individuals from their BOLO, their Be On The Lookout photo page. And so it appears that there's, there has been an unspecified number of individuals on the BOLO page who have been identified, but whose arrests are still in the pipeline. And so, again... Just because they're on the page doesn't mean they haven't been identified. Nonetheless, if you have information about their identity, uh, please do get that to the FBI. I also mentioned that they hadn't made any arrests in their AOM, uh, their attack on media cases, but uh, that we shouldn't have read too much into that, that it just implied that the FBI was clearing out cases by category uh, and not that the attack on media cases weren't being taken seriously. Um, well, it seemed, I don't know, I, more timely than I could know because, again, last week um, they appear to have started on that tranche of cases. Uh, five individuals were arrested in assault on media cases uh, in the last week. So they've got another uh, 20-something to go, but it looks like they're making a good start identifying and charging individuals uh, who appear to have arrest, uh, assaulted media. Uh, in the attack on the media cases. Finally, my other intuition also seems to be borne out somewhat uh, in that they appear to be arresting more persons charged with more serious crimes. So of the last 16 arrests they've made in the last week or so, uh, only three of them um, could you, you know, are people you could put in the sort of, quote, misguided tourist category that Representative Clyde came up with, right? people who went into the Capitol but didn't appear to have engaged in any more serious offenses. Um, everybody else, you've got charges of conspiracy, assault on the media, uh, assault on officers. Um, so the proportion of people who are committing violent offenses and being uh, charged with more violent offenses uh, is going to go up, it would seem. 
And, um, you know, it makes sense. They've gotten rid of the low-hanging fruit, right? If you were just someone who wandered in, wanted to go take some pictures for your social media, uh, many of those people have been identified. Um, and so what we're left with are, are people who, you know, may be harder to find, right? Because, well, they know they committed a serious crime. And so they weren't live streaming uh, or giving as much in the way of, you know, sort of self-provided video evidence incriminating themselves. Um, instead, they're having to rely on tips um, and also possibly geolocation data. So some of these arrests, by the way, in the last week uh, have also been notable for other reasons. Um, they charged another Oath Keeper with conspiracy, for example, in the Oath Keeper super conspiracy indictment. They arrested an individual who claimed to address as Antifa, or at least how he imagined Antifa might dress. And they also arrested um, a, the uh, attack on the officer, attack on officers, uh, Bolo, uh, beyond the lookout picture, individual number 320, uh, a person who is nicknamed or has been nicknamed by uh, online sleuths as Ginger Juggernaut, uh, who's been now identified as Joseph Hutchinson. Um, this, he's a really big guy, red hair, obviously, that's why, they, you know, Ginger Juggernaut. And um, he's a conspicuously large man and who appears to be on video assaulting police. So we don't know much about him. This was an arrest that was made on the 7th, and I haven't seen the charging document yet, only press reports. Um, but I think it might turn out that he had been identified uh, somewhat, some, you know, weeks or even months ago. And they just hadn't gotten around uh, to identifying him. Why? Well, because he's a very unique and looking individual. Um, his face is clearly visible in, in the photographs. And so it's kind of hard to imagine that, that he wasn't uh, identified some time ago. Now, could be coincidence, could be not. Again, what I think is happening now, we're seeing more arrests for more assaults that took place outside the Capitol and that we're also seeing that the proportion of defendants arrested on more serious charges is going to go up. So also, another thing to look for as investigative resources are freed up, it's likely that we're going to see more pictures added to the Be On The Lookout uh, photo lineup page. Um, the FBI just added a new picture, uh, AFO, assault on officer last week, number uh, 411. All right. So let's move on to this week's topic, which are top 10 most violent offenders charged to date in the Capitol insurrection. The worst. Now, again, they're probably people who are just as bad, if not worse, who are out there. And certainly is this hard, hard uh, a selection criterion to make. Um, but the reason why I want to look at the people who face the most violent allegations are as follows. First is, I already did an episode on some of the least violent defendants, uh, and so they're out of the way, right? And I think they're out of the way kind of for the FBI, too. They're trying to arrange plea deals with these people and move on to some of the more serious charges. Secondly, uh, many of the stories contained in the charging documents aren't getting as much coverage in any particular detail. Again, um, the press has you know, not done a particularly good job keeping this story in the news, uh, and moreover, they're they're still focusing on people like Jacob Chansley, right? Um, just because he looks like a clown in his costume and face paint, um, they're they're more interested in that than following up on cases that are are objectively uh, the most serious. 
Uh, and there was news in the Chansley case this week. Uh, it looks like he's being referred uh, for a competency evaluation because they, they believe he may not be uh, competent to assist counsel uh, at trial. So um, something to look for in that case. Again, not particularly uh, a notable defendant other than the fact that he, he garnered a lot more of media coverage. Um, there are many more people who committed many more serious uh, assaults um, and conspiracies who have received far less coverage. Third thing, we're now reaching a point in the legal process where important decisions are being arrived at for these violent defendants. So they've um, they've had custody hearings, bail hearings, right? Um, and these are being appealed, and they are making decisions. Courts are making decisions about whether or not these individuals are going to be kept in pretrial detention, or whether or not they are going to be set free. Only about ten percent, slightly over ten percent, of all defendants um, are being kept in pretrial detention. So I want to touch on that last question in a little more detail. The initial pretrial detentions for some of these defendants have been challenged. Some of them are under some form of non-custodial supervision. What does that mean? Well, things such as high-intensity uh, supervision programs, where they're being monitors. Uh, some of them are have been forbidden to actually even leave their house. Some of them are, are permitted to go to work, et cetera, and so forth. And some of them are, are prohibited engaging in certain kinds of activities. Um, the basis the D.C. courts have been using for making these decisions has been established in a couple of cases. Uh, one of them is a case against Eric Munchel and his mother, who's known uh, in the media and other circles as the zip tie guy, uh, whose attorneys challenges pretrial detention. And on March 26th, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit ruled that Munchell would be released and that the principles established in this case ultimately wind up serving as uh, binding in some of the other cases. Um, so, again, not an attorney, but I'll just talk briefly about these criteria because I think it's important uh, when we ask the question, well, why are they releasing so many people? These are the criteria that they've set up just for these defendants. And I'd like to, to question some of this. Um, so the Munchal decision cites U.S. v. Salerno, 1987. Quote, and this is directly from the Salerno decision. In our society, liberty is the norm, and detention prior to trial or without trial is the carefully limited exception. End quote. It also cites the Bail Reform Act of 1984, in that it establishes dangerousness as a criterion for pretrial detention. And U.S. v. Vasquez Benitez in 2019, which also includes flight risk as a criterion. That's obviously not the first uh, case to you know involve flight risk as, as a criterion for detention. Nonetheless, uh, it's the one they, they cite 2019 uh, precedent. The court rejected most of the defendants' grounds for release for pretrial detention. Detention again uh, in the Munchal case, but they ultimately agreed that Munchal and his mother don't pose a threat on the basis of dangerousness. Quote, In our view, those who actually assaulted police officers and broke through windows, doors, and barricades, and those who aided, conspired with, planned, or coordinated such actions are in a different category of dangerousness than those who cheered on the violence or entered the Capitol after others cleared the way. End quote. So the court's reserving the right to detain those who took part in the violence, 
but also apparently believes those who carried a dangerous weapon, such as Munchal, who carried a taser, could uh, be freed, right? Should be freed, pending trial, provided that they didn't actually use the weapon or assault anyone or destroy property, and provided that they have an otherwise clean criminal history, which Munchal, by the way, doesn't. Um, but the judge minimizes the severity of his criminal history. Quoting again from the Munchal decision, the district court also failed to demonstrate that it considered the specific circumstances that made it possible on January 6th for Munchal and Eisenhart, that's Munchal's mother, to threaten the peaceful transfer of power. The appellants had a unique opportunity to obstruct a democracy on January 6th because of the Electoral College vote tally taking place that day and the concurrently scheduled rallies and protests. Thus, Munchal and Eisenhart were able to attempt to obstruct the Electoral College vote by entering the Capitol together with a large group of people who had gathered at the Capitol in protest that day. They didn't, by the way. They, they gathered at the Capitol to commit violence, but okay. Because Munchal and Eisenhart did not vandalize any property or commit violence, the presence of the group was critical to their ability to obstruct the vote and to cause danger to the community. Without it, Munchal and Eisenhart, two individuals who did not engage in any violence and who were not involved in planning or coordinating the activities, seemingly would have posed little threat. The district court found that the appellants were a danger to, quote, act against Congress in the future, but there was no explanation of how the appellants would be capable of doing so now that the specific circumstances of January 6th have passed, end quote. This is where I think the court is absolutely wrong. No, the exact circumstances of January 6th are not going to repeat themselves because Biden's victory has already been certified. But the key motivation for many of the mob was the fact that they, were, they bought into a lie that they had been told about election fraud. And this circumstance has absolutely not changed. In fact, it's worse now because Donald J. Trump has hit the road again. He's holding rallies around the country, telling the same lies that he told the crowd on the ellipse on January 6th. So the, the exact circumstances are different, but these are people who've demonstrated that they're utterly willing to do whatever Trump commands them to do. Uh, even, you know, going so far as, again, you know, wild equals political violence, right? They're willing to make that leap. So in my, it's my belief that the appellate court really dismissed this danger too quickly. All right. So talk a, a bit about another case that is being cited in these pretrial detention cases, which is U.S. v. Crestman. Uh, Crestman, again, is a proud boy uh, member of uh, a president, actually, of his local chapter, I believe in what was it, St. Louis or Kansas City, um, and is disabled, uh, allegedly, and uh, you know traveled to D.C. to help coordinate and act, allegedly, as a, a kind of a, a captain uh, in attacking the Capitol. So, uh, in this decision, the, uh, again regarding pretrial detention, um, they they outline the conditions that should be considered. Quote. These considerations include whether a defendant, one, has been charged with felony or misdemeanor offenses, two, engaged in prior planning before arriving at the Capitol, three, carried or used a dangerous weapon during the riot, four, coordinated with other participants before, during, or after the riot, five, 
assumed either a formal or de facto leadership role in the assault by encouraging other rioters' misconduct, and six, the nature of the defendant's words and movements during the riot, including whether he damaged or attempted to damage federal property, threatened or confronted federal officials or law enforcement, or otherwise promoted or celebrated efforts to disrupt the certification of the electoral vote count during the riot. End quote. So that's the context. The underlying conditions that caused the political violence on January 6th still apply, which is why I think it's useful to look at these uh, violent defendants, as many of them uh, are having that these bail uh, processes uh, go forward. And I believe it's naive of the court to simply pretend that all danger is passed simply because of Biden's victory has been certified. So, given that the danger to the community is one of the most important factors in determining custody decisions, I think it's a suitable time to examine some of the most serious cases involving the violence at the Capitol insurrection. And I think we should spend a moment here uh, on my selection criteria, right? Obviously not definitive, it's it's just a top 10 list uh, in a podcast, nonetheless. Um, My first cut was to include everyone charged with assault as a potential candidate for inclusion. And next, so that's 120, 130 cases, uh, I began looking at those defendants who were facing the most charges, right? Just the, the total number. And some of them are chased, you know, facing 13, 14 charges. Um, those were in, in documents with multiple defendants, but nonetheless, you know, that was my sort of my next uh, cut point. But it became pretty apparent to me that this was inadequate uh, because let's say, for example, one defendant is accused of punching a police officer once, right? And another one is also accused of punching a police officer once, but also picked up a baton on the ground at some point. That second defendant is going to be facing more serious charges, even though, you know, the, the actual uh, most serious charge, right, the, the punch, the assault, um, you know, is the same. Uh, just because he happened to pick up a dangerous weapon even if he didn't use that baton to attack anyone. So just the aggregate number of uh, of charges isn't as useful, right? So, I mean, if you uh, punch someone once uh, or you engage in a, a prolonged attack uh, of, you know, a couple of minutes, um, you know, it's the same charge, right? So um, also, you know, those who attacked officers, there, there, there's some of them who, again, as I discussed last episode, didn't enter the Capitol. And so that's four card charges that, that you're not going to catch. Those four charges that are be levy, being levied against people who entered a restricted building or who had a dangerous weapon uh, in, uh, inside a restricted building. So I, I had to do a deeper dive into the charging documents uh, for each of the defendants based on the severity of the charges, the amount of violence evident in the charges, mitigating factors, prior criminal history, evident premeditation, and uh, the hard-to-quantify factor of the dangerousness of the defendant. I would submit that some of these defendants, just based on who they are, are, you know, arguably worse than other defendants, right? So if I, for example, um, am a law enforcement officer, presumably I should know better. Presumably uh, I've been trained, right? So I've been trained to engage in violence by the state, and I've then made a conscious, oftentimes premeditated decision 
to go to uh, D.C. and engage in premeditated political violence with the goal, effectively, of stopping the, the transfer of power, um, that's worse, right? That That is worse than, let's say, you know, uh, some of these people who are very young and naive and, you know, perhaps, you know, may have thrown a punch or two, uh, but didn't come prepared for violence and may not be fully aware of the, the, you know, the nature of our judicial processes in a way that law enforcement ought to be, right? So, um, without further sort of preambulatory ramblings, let's jump straight into the list, starting with number 10. Number 10, Luke Russell Coffey. He's facing 10 counts. Coffey is from Dallas, Texas, and he's 41 years old. He's alleged to have fought officers with a crutch for an extended period of time, pushing them and striking them at the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. Coffee's identity was known to the FBI for some time before charges were filed, and his involvement was publicly known. Coffee's worked as an actor and director for the television program Friday Night Lights. He spent six weeks at a luxury resort between the mob attack on January 6th and the time when he turned himself into the FBI. At some point on January 15th, Coffee took three hours to appear on Conspiracy Castle with Alex Stein to discuss the insurrection. Here's what he had to say. I got on a bullhorn and I was like, let's just pray. And this is a you know battle um, of not flesh and blood, but the principalities of darkness. This is a spiritual battle. All you believers, let's get down on our knees and pray. So I took off my cowboy hat. That's that picture, and they're saying, you know, domestic. They were using that photo, ironically, and you literally see people bowing their knee to Jesus, to, to the God of love. And that's how the Mockingbird media twists this shit and manipulates your mind. So now we're compared to 9-11 domestic terrorists. My family's ashamed of me that I have, uh, I was, and by the way, I went there to New York, uh, to D.C. with my buddy uh, Brady to celebrate. This was a freedom march, all right? It's a liberty march, so stop the steal. And many of us know, there's, if you're a sleepyhead that still thinks that this, there was no chance this was stolen, you are, you, you are an ostrich that just buried your damn head in the sand, all right? This was a stolen, treason, most treasonous uh, election in modern-day history, I think, in maybe uh, the history of the world because it's so public and we're so connected throughout the world. This was a ridiculous steal. I'm telling you, I've seen, I've intel that the real number is 306 electoral votes that Trump had. He, he read, uh, California was red, Virginia was red, um, New York State was red. This is, if you doubt this, then I'm sorry. You know, you can doubt that what, uh, what I'm going to tell you tonight is going on, but and, and I know some of y'all are, are going to think I'm nuts. And uh, But I, I'm, I'm telling you this from, I've put my reputation on the line. I've lost fam, you know, family members that say they'll never talk to me again because they're ashamed of me. But I know the conviction of my heart and what God has shown me and also how I've been part of this. This It's, it's a very undercover uh, operation that only God himself uh, came up with this plan that is going to take down the darkness of this world. This Right. So God, right. So God has demonstrated the truth of these allegations. Um, 
yeah, I feel bad for his friend Bradley, uh, who he basically outed. Um, he's a little confused about whether or not it's electoral votes or electoral votes. Um, so this is probably someone who you know, definitely um, knows what's going on, has the inside track. Um, but it, it goes on. And you talk about Satan and um, a, a lot of other nonsense. Um, but Coffee uh, did turn himself in. Um, perhaps because he has a better attorney than most of the, uh, defendants, uh, you know, took his advice. Um, coffee has been released from pretrial detention and is currently in a high intensity monitoring program. Um, interestingly, one of the roles that coffee, uh, recently had was as a right wing extremist on NBC's the chase. He's a QAnon believer and he claims his involvement was spontaneous. Uh, unlike many of the people in the front of the tunnel, he is wearing street clothes, right? He's not doesn't have military gear. Um, so it could be that he just doesn't hit enough of the markers of dangerousness established for the defendants uh, in the, the Crestman decision. So uh, you can listen to him describe what he believes at length on his Conspiracy Theory web show with Alex Stein. Um, but what he appears to believe doesn't actually make a lot of sense. It's basically gibberish. Now, he's a bit more contrite than some of the defendants, um, but, you know, he was right there uh, when Officer Fanon was being attacked, and when Roseanne Boyland had the medical emergency and uh, fell to the ground and was uh, trampled to get death, um, he, he was right there and, you know, didn't offer aid. In fact, uh, it's alleged that uh, the activities in which he was engaged with the crutch um, right there at the front of the mob, uh, caused Capitol Police and, and uh, Metro Police to be unable to render aid to Boyland, which is a contributing factor, perhaps, to her death. So he's not oriented to surroundings, right? There could be things going on all around him, and, and he doesn't even notice it, but he does believe some genuinely bizarre things. Um, and right now, of course, you know, Donald Trump is visiting Texas. So time will tell, you know, is it good to let someone out uh, like this out into the public when you've got the same liars out saying the same lies and um, he's willing to engage in political violence in the service of those lies because he believes that God has given him a revelation, um, much like the QAnon shaman, right? You know, if facts don't matter if you can just turn to some set of metaphysical beliefs. All right, number nine, Sean Michael McHugh. Sean Michael McHugh faces eight counts. He's uh, from California, age 34. He allegedly encouraged the crowd using megaphone and organized efforts to remove barricades and engaged in a tug of war with officers over the barricades, uh, the, the bike racks that were being used for that purpose. Uh, according to the charges, at approximately 1.40 p.m. on January 6th, McHugh organized the crowd and directed them to use a very large metal Trump sign as a battering ram against officers. They have some sort of, uh, I don't know if it's fabric or uh, some sort of plastic material stretched over this large uh, metal frame. It looks like maybe 20 feet by 8 feet. Um, and he instructs the crowd to, to bash this frame uh, against the officers who are standing behind the bike racks. Um, McHugh then appears to, to spray some sort of chemical at officers. Um, and incidentally, uh, uh, and other people in the mob, uh, in fact, it, it could be the angle of the, the photographs 
but it actually looks like he's underestimating the range of the spray, and uh, most of it's falling uh, upon um, his his you know his fellow Trumpists, uh, his compatriots. So um, he makes this list in part because he has a long arrest history, um, a statutory rape conviction. Rather comically, um, he attacked officers, uh, you know, uh, with with the spray, and then also directed them to employ what was probably the largest weapon that was employed in the Capitol insurrection, uh, that sign. So uh, the government claims McHugh organized the crowd to assault the officers uh, with that sign. Um, And, you know, he's someone who is well-known, let's say, to local authorities. Uh, He lives in Auburn, California, and has a criminal history going back to at least 2010, when he pleaded guilty to statutory rape involving a 14-year-old when he was 23. The local department apparently has responded to as many as 20 calls involving McHugh, and records at the Placer County Courthouse show he's had numerous offenses since then, including probation violations, domestic violence cases involving a female domestic partner, vandalism, trespassing, possession of burglary tools, breaking and entering burglary, possession of marijuana, obstructing or resisting a police officer, and at least two DUIs. So some of the press coverage focused on the fact that McHugh is apparently a QAnon cultist who also has hands-on offenses against a, a minor. But the broader point is, though some accounts depict the mob as comprised of all these law-abiding citizens, there are plenty of defendants who do have criminal histories, like Shaden Jenkins or Frederico Klein. Um, McHugh's been, uh, you know, basically getting attention from law enforcement for his entire lifetime, and he's earned it. And so that is that criminal history, which is why he was ordered to be kept in pretrial detention at his latest hearing on June 25th, and also why he comes in at number nine on the list. All right, number eight. Joseph Padilla, age 40, of Cleveland, Tennessee, who is facing eight counts. Uh, he's an Iraq war vet who has been diagnosed with PTSD and uh, is, gets disability uh, payments on that basis, and he's a homemaker. So in late December of 2020, um, Padilla, again, discussing his plans uh, for, for the upcoming month, uh, sent the following message to a friend on Facebook. Quote, Honestly, I don't think anything less than taking D.C. with a heavily armed protest is the only thing that will work. Remind them we the people are in charge, not the deep state. When the user responded, are you going to pack? To which the court interpreted as uh, packing a firearm, Padilla replied, quote, only if I can find an organized group who is as well, because, quote, If people struggle in ones and twos, cops can arrest everyone who's packing. Padilla added, might just have to fight Proud Boy style. Uh, Again, this is from the court documents. The following day, Padilla messaged, all I can say is that this is the tipping point. Take a weapon. I plan on buying a rifle in the next couple of days. If shit kicks off, you'll upgrade your weapon. End quote. So the government's charging that Padilla planned to go to the Capitol weeks prior to the insurrection, and so his violence wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. Padilla appears in a YouTube video 
showing him fighting the police from about 1.30 to 1.40, fighting over a barricade. And at 4.47, uh, another YouTube video also shows Padilla throwing a metal pole at officers at the Lower West Terrace entrance to the Capitol. So that's just the video evidence, which encompasses three separate assaults against police over the span of three hours. And Padilla may have been fighting the police pretty much the whole time, um, at least if you listen to what he posted on his own social media. Quote, I was right there. I have the wounds to prove it. I pushed the rails, I pushed the stairs, and then pushed the doorway. I was beaten unconscious twice, sprayed more times than I care to admit, received strikes from batons that should have been lethal, multiple temple and karyotid strikes, except that God was on my side. Some chode had stalled everyone out, saying that he had an announcement that amounted, uh, that amounted to, if we quit pushing the cops, they will quit beating us, basically surrender. If that asshat hadn't stalled our momentum, the cops wouldn't have been able to reinforce their position, and we would have occupied the Capitol. If we could have occupied the Capitol, we could have invoked the right given to us in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. We would have been the seat of power. All we would need to do is declare our grievances with the government and dissolve the legislature and replace it with patriots who were there. Then simply readopt the Constitution with amendments added to secure future federal elections. What happened Wednesday is that it needs to be done again and again. I'm not talking about the bitches that were just let in. I'm talking about those of us who got pissed when the cops started bashing hands and pepper spraying people who were only talking and shouting. Don't you realize it yet? The war has been upon us for years. And we're just, we've just been wringing our hands about it. After the events of the 6th, I'm done being passive. End quote. So that's, that's really a great statement uh, for the government, right? He lays out a plan for the death of electoral democracy in America as clearly as anyone has done uh, to include constitutional provisions that somehow would guarantee uh, that uh, elections would no longer be meaningfully contested in the United States. So, even though the charges of violence against Padilla aren't as serious uh, as some of the others on the list, uh, what he does do is to hit all the criteria for dangerousness that the government outlines in Cressman. So, uh, here we are looking at the, another one of the charging documents. Um, quote, the court uh, acknowledges that Padilla is not alleged to have committed any... Actually, sorry, this is from the, the, the bond, uh, the bail, the custody hearing. Quote, the court acknowledges that Padilla is not alleged to have committed any criminal activity in his home or to have acquired tactical equipment there. Nonetheless, he was at home when he planned to travel to Washington, determined that a heavily armed protest was the only thing that would work, and assessed that he might have to, quote, just have to fight Proud Boy style. And he was also at home when he proclaimed after January 6th that his days of being passive were over and that guns were necessary in the future. So, uh, again, they, they then uh, cite the Federico Klein decision uh, where they find home detention warranted where a defendant is not alleged to have engaged in any lawful or even threatening conduct before. So, uh, again, because he said, you know, I'm going to do it again. Um, but he had ample time to engage in behavior 
uh, that, you know, despite his parental obligations, and he did so notwithstanding the consequences that his family might face. As other judges in this district have noted, any restrictions that this court might place on Padilla ultimately rely, on some degree, on his voluntary compliance. And they cite uh, the decision uh, in the Spaz Bazzoli case. And given the determination that Padilla evinced on January 6th and thereafter to forcibly advance his own personal beliefs over the rule of law, the court is not reasonably assured he would comply. So the real difference here between Padilla and many of the other defendants who are granted pretrial release is that he very neatly explained his plans for the overthrow of the U.S. government after January 6th. And at no time did he disavow violence. In fact, he explicitly embraces violence and said that he, you know, they should become more violent. So this is someone that the government basically pays to stay at home with his young children. Um, something that many fathers might want to do, right? But he just turned around and attacked the people who authorized the spending upon which he depends for his livelihood and then is, is not at all contrite about it. So... Mr. Padilla is number eight on the list. Moving on to number seven, Jeffrey McKellop. Jeffrey McKellop is a 55-year-old Special Forces veteran and military contractor from Virginia who faces 12 counts. According to the Statement of Facts, McKellop attacked an MPD captain with a flagpole with a thin blue line flag on it, which caused a cut, basically a stab wound, uh, near the officer's left eye. He's also alleged to have assaulted two other officers in the same attack. McKellop, as a military contractor, appears to have much better equipment uh, than many of the others in the mob. Um, tipsters who reported him claimed that the military kit that he wore on the 6th is the same that he would wear when deployed in combat overseas. He was wearing a military-grade gas mask, and so was much better equipped to charge at the officers who were using chemical irritants to disperse the crowd. McKellop was wearing a plate carrier emblazoned with the flag of Georgia, right? That's level four body armor with a, a ceramic uh, or a metal, no, I believe ceramic plate inside. Um, it's emblazoned with the flag of Georgia, right? Which is a white and red flag, uh, the country, uh, not, not the state. And so he really much, he stood out from the other people in the mob who were wearing military gear. Um, it's not known if McKellop had been sent to Georgia at some point on behalf of the United States government in a professional capacity, but he has worked in combat zones as a military contractor, apparently also for the CIA. So it's not unreasonable to assume that Georgia is one of the places where he served. By addition, definition, someone in this line of work as a military contractor for the CIA would have to have a security clearance. So even though he's retired, um, in his capacity as a military contractor, he is, in a very real sense, someone who serves the security interests of the United States. In today's environment, the line where you make the, the demarcation between, uh, you know, a retired person uh, and then, you know, someone who's active duty, right, if they're working as a military contractor, it's, it's very ill-defined. Um, Scott Stark, who's a fellow Special Forces, Forces veteran, said in a letter that he submitted to the court that he invited McKellop to the rally before the January 6th riot uh, because he feared protesters opposing then-Donald Trump would rally to attack him, Trump, presumably. Quote, You must understand Jeff's personality to know why he brought body armor, gas masks, water, and medical kit. 
He is always prepared for the worst-case scenario. That is what his Special Forces training and roughly 20 years deploying overseas, about eight of those years protecting State Department and government officials, has taught him. End quote. So he's going to premeditation, right? He's saying, well, you shouldn't read too much into it, Mr. Steyer is claiming, uh, because this is just something that this guy does, right? He just, he brings uh, level four body armor with him, um, just in case, you know, stuff kicks off. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know that that's, you know, a particularly uh, good line of defense, because, you know, you, you, you don't get to just say, you know, well, I may have appeared to have engaged in political violence, but really this is, you know, this is just for defense because he then, of course, uh, you know, launches unprovoked attacks on law enforcement. So the judge in his case called the charges against McKellop some of the most serious in the Capitol insurrection cases. And McKellop himself has been a bit of a dramatic defendant. During a hearing on March 22nd, he appeared to either pass out or uh, malinger, right, or to feign fainting. Um, for a hearing on June 14th, McKellop refused to leave his cell. They didn't extract him. He just like, you know what? I've got a court date. Let my lawyer handle it. I, I'm not going to come to court. Um, so a bit of a drama, Mama. And uh, we have someone here with, you know, training and equipment that was actually supplied by the United States government using that training and equipment against the United States government. Now, I would assume that the government takes a dim view of this. And so, of course, he is being detained. Thank you. Um, you know, this guy is a danger to the community. Um, if a special forces operator who's determined to attack the government isn't a danger to the community, who is? And we've all seen Rambo, right? So, makes sense. Um, despite the letter from uh, his YouTube buddy, uh, Scott Steyer. All right, number six, Daniel Dean Eggvet. Uh, he faces nine counts. Uh, Eggvet is a 57-year-old salesman who lives in Oakland, Maryland. According to his driver's license, he's six foot two inches tall and weighs 320 pounds. But looking at his video, he may have gained a few pounds since the last time that he renewed his license. The allegations against Eggvet are remarkable because he appears to act with impunity and determination. In almost all the video evidence, Capitol Police and D.C. Metropolitan Police are massively outnumbered. But that's not the case in the video in Eggvet's case. According to the affidavit, there's video evidence taken from Parler that shows Eggvet forcing his way into the Capitol at 2.47 p.m. A little bit later, an officer, identified in the documents as M.D., uh, they use initials to anonymize uh, the, all the, you know, the witnesses, um, spots Eggvet in the Hall of Columns, uh, which is, you know, this historic and, you know, very uh, lovely uh, hallway in, in the Capitol. Um, and Eggvet appears to be leaving, but then he turns around and heads toward the rotunda. Um, in the video, it appears that the officers are using the Hall of Commons, uh, Columns as a, a kind of staging area. And so there's dozens of officers in the area, and almost none of the rabble are, are there, right? In fact, in a couple of uh, spots, you can see some of them wander in, and the police just take them and move them to the doors, and they, they, most of them appear to do this voluntarily. They're like, oh, poo, there are dozens of officers here. I'm not going to fight with you. And they just allow themselves to go 
uh, to be taken, escorted effectively uh, to the exits. So um, there's a female Capitol Police officer who is identified as M.M., who reported that Egvet screamed at her to shoot him and then rushed in to attack her. And he claimed that he grabbed her left arm with both hands and he responded by strike, she responded by striking him in the head with her right arm. Officer M.M. then tried to take Egvet down by grabbing him by the waist, but couldn't because of his massive girth. Um, Officer M.D. then continues to wrestle Egvet, trying to direct him toward the exit. And it looks like he's, he's in the video, moving that way. Um, but then Egvet slips. Now, this could be the capsaicin spray, right? The, the floor in there is stoned and uh, polished and probably slippery under ordinary conditions when you consider the amount of, you know, just um, the, the spray that they're using actually gets quite slippy under those uh, circumstances. Uh, or honestly, it could be egg that sweat, right? This is a 320-pound middle-aged man uh, who's been fighting. Uh, and in the video, you can see that he's, he's just drenched. Um, so and at this point, you can see him just sprawled across the floor. And uh, his head hits uh, one of the columns rather hard on, on the way down. So, and he just sprawls there. And the police appear to ignore him for a while. Um, but at some point, they decide they have to remove him from the area. And so they try to pick him up, which goes about as well as you might imagine. A sweaty, 320-pound middle-aged man who's been fighting the police probably doesn't have to do much to, be, to uh, resist being moved. Uh, other than, you know, not standing up, which he apparently wasn't in the mood to do. But eventually, they get Big Boy moving again under his own steam, and uh, he's on video appearing to leave. Um, and then at some point, he falls again. And officers will offer him medical aid, and they try to help them, and, and he attacks him again. Or So it goes something like that, right? So Agvet goes in the hall, gets belligerent with officers, flops on the floor, then pretends to leave, flops on the floor again, and gets belligerent with officers again and is finally removed from the Capitol uh, at 3.14 p.m. Um, what's kind of noteworthy about this is that, uh, you know, Egbert can't seem to get arrested or shot, right? I mean, he's begging the officers to shoot him. You, I don't know if there's a martyrdom complex or if he's got something going on in his personal life. Um, and they don't. Um, he's ejected from the Capitol twice. At one of his um, detention uh, hearings, uh, his attorney... Uh, and the, if you want to read those documents, it, the quality of the legal representation is is spotty. I believe he actually has a, a private attorney, and the, the arguments that this attorney is making are sometimes really uh, kind of out there. Um, you know, he says that well, this this one officer, this officer M.M., who's dressed in a bike officer's uniform, takes it appears to take a personal interest in this, then you know, in Agvet and making sure he's removed. Well. There's an obvious reason for that, right? When Egbert comes back in, um, she knows that this is someone they've ejected from the hall before. So she did the logical thing. She she knew that this guy did, you know, was was coming back, right? And that's that's a threat to the safety of the officers. So, you know, he's trying to explain it somehow personal. No, she, she's doing her job, right? Um, but it's you know, he he just sort of steadfastly refuses uh, to you know, cooperate uh, repeatedly. So after he's ejected from the Capitol uh, for the second time, Egbert appears to not go back inside. 
Um, instead, spending his time outside uh, talking to various live streamers. Uh, and uh, one of these, um, yeah, at, at least three different. Uh, here's one of them, a sample of what he had to say immediately after fighting with as many as nine officers at once. Americans have been shot inside our own Actually, I was uh, pepper sprayed twice in the eyes, and then they took, um, um, I can't breathe. You were just in there, just protesting. I told them, I said, you're in violation of the Constitution. This is the people's house, and it's been taken over. And I said, the Constitution says to preserve and protect against all enemies, foreign and domestic. You're in violation of that, sirs. What about the- so his constitutional understanding uh, seems to be a little bit weak. Uh, now, Egvet's been released from pretrial detention, uh, despite not disavowing the lies that sent him into the Capitol. Um, when he ruled that Egvet should be released from pretrial detention, Judge Cooper said this, he has shown a disregard for the law. No documented connections with the groups alleged to have organized what's called the insurrection. I am not convinced that if released, he would assault the country, the county city hall. In quote, I think that's a mistake, right? Um, again, if you've demonstrated that you can be instructed to commit felonies at the behest of parties who are telling disproved lies, and those liars are still out there spreading the same lies, then the court should show some more concern for the safety of the community that is being shown in these releases. I might add that Egbert's case, um, again, a bit of an interesting one. Uh, the media sued for the release of the video footage of the uh, different uh, incidents and uh, was able to get it under a Freedom of Information Act request. Um, and really, there was no reason uh, for that not to be released. Um, and so it's been released, and uh, it just shows what, what happened, uh, you know, the, the video actually supports 100% of the government's claims in the charging documents. Moving along to number five, Michael Joseph Foy, age 30, of Wixom, Michigan, who faces eight counts. Foy is accused of beating a prone officer with a hockey stick wrapped in a Trump 2020 flag. Uh, from the charging documents, quote, Specifically, at timestamp stamp one in the video, Foy begins striking a group of Metropolitan Police officers assisting in the protection of the U.S. Capitol, who had been knocked down and dragged into the crowd of rioters. This attack con- uh, continues for approximately 16 seconds until Foy is knocked down by another rioter. Uh, that's from the pretrial detention brief. Quote, Body camera footage from one of the officers comes closest to capturing the chaos and aggression of the January 6th riot. The government will play clips of several different videos, including body camera footage at a detention hearing. Figure 9 is a still shot taken from the body camera footage. It shows officers on the ground trying to protect themselves as Foy swings his hockey stick at them. After 10 swings, Foy fell back onto the ground, but he was far from finished. He stayed near the doors to the Capitol building. A few minutes later, Foy appears to have rallied his fellow rioters, again taking a leadership role in the chaos. After shouting to the crowd, Foy took his hockey stick and crawled through a broken window and into the Capitol. 
and Foy's conduct here is some of the most violent that occurred in the Capitol in the riot on January 6th. He, a former Marine trained in combat, brought a hockey stick to the riot at the Capitol, and when things started to get out of hand, he took a leading role in the violence. He repeatedly used the hockey stick to beat police officers in the face, neck, head, and body area, and then he rallied others into entering the Capitol through broken windows. The nature and circumstances of Foy's offenses support his detention, end quote. Well, today, um, I did not plan this, but uh, today Foy was ordered released from pretrial detention. So if you look in the video, um, which is available online, uh, you'll see that Foy's attack is vicious. Uh, the alleged attack, right? Um, he, yeah. he looks intent on murder. I mean, I don't know, you know, again, not an attorney, what the line between attempted murder and uh, an assault is, but th these are absolutely vicious attacks on uh, prone officers. Um, he's trying to hit them in the head with a hockey stick. You know, maybe, you know, that's <laughs> right in, in um, pro hockey, that, that might be a penalty box uh, a thing, but even so, th this would be like lifetime ban kind of stuff. Um, and, um, yeah, but he's, he's out. Former Marine, trained in combat, um, went to try to, uh, you know, all the way from Wixom, Michigan, uh, to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power, and uh, he's out. So, um, also, it's a bit of a minor point, but the AUSA has misspelled Foy's name in the pretrial detention brief, spelling Michael, M-I-C-H-A-L, um, which is a bit embarrassing because the error appears in boldface, and it, it's in a larger font size. Uh, to me, though, of course, this is actually an indicator of the amount of pressure the AUSAs are under. Um, they filed this document on January 24th, and they're just boom, 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 going through charging document after charging document. And so that makes sense to me how something like that would happen. It doesn't really matter. Just, you know, um, small note, you know, standards of grammar, spelling, punctuation, all these documents are actually usually quite good. All right. That was number five. Number four. Edward Jacob Lang, 25, of Newburgh, New York, faces 11 counts. Um, yeah, so like Foy, uh, he's attacking officers with an object. Uh, he beat officers, allegedly, with a baseball bat. And in terms of the actual amount of violence, the allegations against Lang are such that he may have committed more individual acts of violence than anyone else. Um, he's quite a young man. You know, unlike uh, someone like Edgar Wright, who's, you know, sweaty and, you know, keeps flopping on the floor after fighting and literally can't breathe. Um, you know, he's just going, apparently, the whole time. He's fighting with police um, for about two hours and uh, taking breaks only to wash the capsaicin spray from his face and also to post on Instagram. Um, yeah, I remember last episode I talked about, well, people are fighting with police don't have time for social media. No, no, not Lang. He's he's up on Instagram. He's putting stuff up uh, as often as he can. Um, and this, you know, shows this interesting kind of dynamic between people who apparently, in some sense, are, are motivated to engage in this kind of behavior based on social media street cred. Um, he's armed with a riot shield and a baseball bat, uh, and he doesn't appear to be affiliated with any of the larger groups, but 
apparently tried to start his own after January 6th. He used the encrypted messaging app Telegram to reach out to some 200 people after the insurrection to encourage them to join an armed militia movement and to also organize future armed demonstrations. Apparently, the lesson that he uh, seems to have learned from January 6th is that the whole thing would have been much better if more guns had been involved. So, see what he had to say about that. But what do you think happens next? Guns. So, what do you think happens next? Guns. So that was the lesson that he learned. Um, you know, he thinks next time, guns. So he appears in over 1,000 different images taken on January 6th, and he posted incriminating evidence on Instagram. He was identified and arrested relatively early, in part because he had, for some reason, invited a reporter into the Telegram channel. And this reporter just sort of lurked, didn't post anything, um, and, uh, you know, identified, uh, presumably through a tip, uh, Lang. Now, he, um, you know, of course, unrepentant, right? Uh, it, it is interesting to me whether or not this reporter also then notified the FBI, uh, you know, of, of the further people who are on this Telegram uh, channel, right? I mean... Um, hopefully some way the FBI would have some way of identifying these persons because they, these are people who've self-selected to join a secret group, uh, to organize future political violence. So, um, you know, I do hope the FBI, if they have time, which they probably don't, uh, take some time to look into that as well. Now, Lang's father reported that, um, Edward Joseph Lang, Edward Jacob Lang, excuse me, uh, has a history of substance abuse and run-ins with law enforcement dating back 11 years. Again, this is someone else who has a long uh, criminal history. Now, I'm speculating, but Lang seems to be very much driven by his own ego. All these pictures uh, in, the, in the charging documents uh, and online, and he's infatuated with his image on social media. So it's kind of like agitprop, right? Um, but, you know, his posts really seem to be to be driven very much in the spirit of uh, feeling cute, might go storm the Capitol later. Um, in a screenshot of an Instagram story provided to the FBI by an informant, Lang actually puts an arrow pointing to uh, a, a man uh, wearing an MPD helmet and carrying a shield with a caption, this is me. So it's a strange picture to post because the man... Is unidentifiable. I mean, you can't see his face, but he's on his own Instagram identifying himself uh, fighting with the police officers with a, a dangerous weapon. And um, on his Telegram channel, uh, he apparently expressed some concerns for the need for operational security, but the one time he really needs to show awareness of this, he goes out of the way to, to just needlessly incriminate himself. Um, so, like some of the other defendants we've talked about before, again, the media, I don't think, has paid attention to this, but when Trump put out the call for violence, he got a lot of people who have history with the police um, and substance abuse. Um, Lang himself uh, strikes me as a, a bit of a failson, 
right? A fail son. Um, this, you know, sort of a uh, person who's got this grandiose idea of himself and who likes to describe himself as a serial entrepreneur, but it seems like his greatest accomplishment is going to be spending many years in federal pr prison. Um, if he's lucky, he might go someplace relatively cushy like Otisville. Um, but I think if he's convicted, uh, he should probably do some time at a pen. Uh, it really might be the sort of transformative experience that he's been seeking. Um, you know, I, he got some viral fame for the utter stupidity of the way in which he incriminated himself on Instagram. But I also think he's noteworthy just because of the amount of violence he's alleged to have engaged in. And the fact that immediately after January 6th, he sought to radicalize others to engage in political violence in the future, armed political violence in the future, and this infallible interest, right, in guns. So if someone's clearly a danger to the community, uh, it's lying. So hopefully they, they won't let him go. We'll see. Uh, he does seem to fit those Crespin criteria. All right. So the third spot. Now, occupying this third spot is a dogpile-style attack on officers. Um, D.C. Metro police officers who are only identified as by their initials BM, AW, and CM in the charging documents. So what happened in this incident? is that uh, officers went into the crowd because they believed that someone was being trampled and it was their duty to save them. And first thing that happens is that one of the defendants, a Jack Witten, allegedly attacked Officer uh, BM with a crutch. And both officers uh, were then dragged into the crowd where they were allegedly beaten by Peter Stager, who's using a flagpole, He's armed with it's carrying the U.S. flag. So, in this incident, you get uh, five for the price of one. Five individual defendants who are accused and engaged in basically the, the same act. So we have Jeffrey Sable, uh, Colorado, age fifty-one, uh, who achieves some notoriety in part because of his profession. He's a geophysicist, um, in part because he tried to flee to Switzerland. Um, and the way he was he was apprehended was that uh, um, at some point, you know, after January 6th, he, he um, was driving erratically and uh, had self-inflicted wounds and was uh, reported this as a suicide attempt um, and, you know, revealed that what he had done. And uh, so this is someone, hopefully, uh, that the Bureau of Prisons is keeping an eye on. Um, and this actually isn't outlined uh, in, in the Crestman criteria. But I think uh, people who are threatening self-harm, right, as we saw with Egvit, as we saw seen with Sable, um, should also be, you know, uh, kept somewhere safe, right, so that they uh, hopefully can't um, hurt themselves. A suicide prevention is a top priority at the Bureau of Prisons. Um, and so, you know, they're going to be safer there, presumably, than they would on the outside, although we could we do a whole other episode uh, on on that topic. But um, he was kept in custody, by the way, because of that Switzerland flight attempt, right? I mean, if you're someone who has the means and the inclination to immediately try to go to Switzerland, um, your your attorneys basically don't have much of a case that you should be let go, right? This is definite flight risk. So next up is uh, Peter Stager. 
uh, age 41 of Arkansas, uh, who beat the officers with the flagpole with the United States flag, uh, including striking officer BW while they were prone. Jack Wade Witten, age 30 of Georgia, who was involved in the attack on officer AW, who is in custody and is a fencing contractor and CrossFit instructor. Michael John Lopatic Sr., 57, of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, who is accused of ripping off one of the officer's helmet and gas masks and stealing his cell phone and breaking the officer's body camera and also hitting him with an uppercut, uh, according to the prosecutor's statements. So, um, Lopatic's free on bail, right? So, out in the community. Um, and again, you know, someone in their late 50s who's engaging this guy, that's, the level of judgment that is shown, uh, not not great. Um, and finally, the fifth officer involved in this attack is one Clayton Ray Mullins, age 52, of Benton, Kentucky, who is under high-intensity supervision and is one of the people who helped to drag Officer A.W. into the crowd. So, all in all, these officers were in a very dangerous predicament. Uh, this attack lasted for about 90 seconds. And fortunately, you know, the officers keep... I mean, some, some of the people in the videos, right, some of the defendants keep saying, well, God was on our side. In this case, God was really on the officer's side. Um, they, they managed to escape with minor injuries, um, which, again, when you're prone and they have people trying to beat you to death, allegedly... Um, that's what they're trying to do here. Um, you know, they, they were very lucky to have escaped with, uh, relatively minor injuries. So, yeah, it's hard to nominate which of these five defendants, uh, is alleged to engage in the most violence. But, um, one of them did take the time on the 6th, actually approximately 20 minutes uh, after, uh, the alleged assault. Um, to uh, speak to a member of the media. Um, this is Peter Stager, and he's the one who's beating um, the officers with the U.S. flag. And if you look at the video, it's quite disturbing. Uh, the, the alleged beating uh, is quite severe. It's obviously out for blood. And here's what he had to say about his motivation, which, again, this is going to be useful to the government. That entire building is filled with treasonous traits. Yes, sir. Death is the only remedy for what's in that building. Well, that's you need to stand up over. and you need your scraps. Everybody in there is a treasonous traitor. Every single one of those capital law enforcement officers, death is the remedy. They that is the only remedy own. they get. So it's pretty unequivocal. Uh, Self-incrimination that he delivers. Um... And uh, he's probably someone who I, I would think, you know, they probably should not uh, release. Uh, my understanding is that uh, Mr. Stager is currently still in custody. All right. Number two. Again, this is another multiple defendant case. So number two, last one was a five and one. This is a four and one. The four defendants who so far have been accused of assaulting Officer Michael Fanone of the Capitol Police. Now, Officer Fanone is unusual. Uh, in that he's an 18-year veteran, um, was beaten very severely, and um, I, he has gone public, right, with his experience. I don't know if maybe he's going to medically retire. Um, perhaps somehow the, the usual rules about talking publicly uh, about ongoing cases don't somehow apply to him, 
Um, but he has come forward and has very publicly expressed his support for well, what he and all the other officers uh, went through on January 6th and ongoing, right? Because Officer Fanon suffered a brain injury as a result of the many um, head wounds, you know, the, the many blows to the head that uh, he's received. And that's something that, you know, you don't just, uh, not just simple matter of, uh, you know, just putting ice on it, right? So this is an attack that's received a fair amount of media coverage, so I, I don't really want to go into too much detail on it here, but it, it just, it's absolutely brutal. So what happens first is that one attacker tasers Fanon, and then the others just sort of dogpile on him, allegedly. Um, and, yeah, it, he's really, Fanon has served kind of as the face of all the officers uh, who were attacked on the 6th. And in addition to the brain injury, uh, he suffered a heart attack as being, uh, you know, a, as a result of the multiple taser attacks. So um, he's also been very outspoken against the Republican officials who continue to support the, the big lie allegations of election fraud and uh, specifically called out Representative Clyde, who he says ran from him when he tried to shake his hand. And Clyde was one of 21 House Republicans who voted against awarding congressional gold medals to members of the Capitol Police. So the four defendants are uh, Daniel Rodriguez, 38, of California, who char faces eight counts. And he is the one who initially, separate indictment for the others, but he's the one who initially tasered Officer Fanon, which enabled his beating. Thomas Siebeck, 35, of Buffalo, New York, who is in custody and who stole... Uh, Officer Fanon's radio and badge. Um, I believe he, he, he disposed of the radio somewhere on, on the way uh, home from to New York, and for some reason buried his badge uh, in his backyard. Um, showed the government where it is. Government was able to dig it up, um, but just some kind of sick trophy. And uh, Kyle James Young, thirty-seven of Redfield, Iowa, who tried to take Fanon's gun but was um, prevented from doing so by uh, safety device uh, on the holster. Um, and uh, his Twitter account, by the way, you know how much I love this. Uh, his Twitter account is still up. It is um, at K10YoungJ, capital J. Um, honestly, his Twitter account is fairly standard. Uh, you know, same kinds of nonsense. Um, uh, doesn't appear to have been a particularly active user, and uh, none of his tweets actually mentioned his plans for January 6th. So I don't know that he's deleted those, um, but he's left his his uh, his account up. And finally, uh, someone I'll talk about in a little bit more depth, Albuquerque Cosper Head, who faces 13 counts. Uh, Mr. Head is age 41 of Kingsport, Tennessee, and bit of a theme here, this man has a long criminal history. In fact, he was on probation and prohibited from leaving Tennessee at the time of the Capitol insurrection. So let's talk about what his criminal history is. Um, and I think we'll start at the beginning. 1999, possession of marijuana, running at red light, evading arrest, Kingsport, Tennessee. Kingsport, Tennessee, 2001, domestic assault and reckless endangerment. Kingsport, Tennessee, 2001, possession of marijuana. Kingsport, Tennessee, 
2002, driving on a revoked, suspended, or canceled license, attempted auto burglary, resisting arrest. Kingsport, uh, sorry, Hawkins County, that's a neighboring county, I know the area quite well, uh, driving on a revoked, suspended, or canceled license, and unlawful possession of a weapon, Hawkins County, 2003. Uh, Rogersville, Tennessee, lovely town. Driving under the influence of drugs and driving on a revoked, suspended, or canceled license. Assault, Kingsport, Tennessee, 2005. Assault, Kingsport, Tennessee, 2006. Kingsport, Tennessee, 2007. Driving under the influence of drugs or alcohol and driving on a revoked or suspended license. Kingsport, Tennessee, 2009. Domestic assault. Kingsport, Tennessee, 2009, driving under the influence of drugs and alcohol, driving on a revoked suspended license, simple possession, casual exchange, evading arrest. Lenoir City, Kent, Tennessee, 2011, simple possession, casual exchange, and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Kingsport, Tennessee, 2014, theft, up to $500. King, uh, Blountville, sorry, Bluntville, Tennessee, uh, 2014, theft of property, uh, $1,000 to $10,000 in possession of unlawful drug paraphernalia. Um, vandalism up to $500 in public intoxication. Kingsport, Tennessee, 2014. Driving under the influence, second offense, and driving under uh, while license revoked, third offense. Jonesboro, Tennessee, 2015. So, yeah, right. This is someone who's apparently engaged in domestic violence, lots of alcohol and drug charges, uh, and charges of violence. So, Albuquerque had um, has an active Twitter account. So, much like perhaps Shane Leiden Jenkins, it may be that there's no one to take it down for him. Um, he joined Twitter in December of 2020. So let's have a brief look at Mr. Head's Twitter account. First thing you need to know about him is that he is an active neo-Confederate. Um, many of his tweets are about sort of the big lie, the, the lost cause myth, um, and, you know, um, lionizing uh, the, the cause of the Confederacy. Um, bit odd, you know, in that uh, East Tennessee was actually, uh, well, with the exception of Sullivan County, um, a bit of a, a unionist bastion. Um, in fact, many uh, people uh, during the, uh, the uh, seditious uh, revolt against the U.S., uh, here we see, you know, history repeating itself in some sense, uh, but many of them chose to actually fight for the, the cause of the Union. Some of them fought in a guerrilla war, but nonetheless, Mr. Head has decided uh, that, you know, the Confederacy was good. Um, oh, by the way, his, his account is at Head Albuquerque. So on President's Day, uh, he retweeted a Confederate site's tweet reading, Happy President's Day. In the South, we remember President George Washington and President Jefferson Davis. They both stood tall for liberty and freedom from oppression. Perhaps with some exceptions. God bless these great men and the great men from the Old South. On February 5th, he retweeted Candace Owens. Quote, this is absolutely insane. Time magazine is literally admitting that a secret cabal of powerful, wealthy elite people and corporations hijacked our 2020 election by steering media coverage, influencing um, perceptions, and changing rules and laws. 
On January 25th, he retweeted a meme from a group called Virginia Flaggers that featured a picture of Civil War Battle Dead with the caption, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set, Proverbs 22:28. And these lives mattered. Stop the removal of historical Confederate monuments. The image features a uh, picture of Confederate dead by a fence at the Hagerstown Turnpike at Antietam. So pretty much every tweet on Mr. Head's uh, account is about lost cause mythology. So he is one of those neo-Confederate, he wouldn't you know, necessarily know that he wasn't wearing a Confederate flag or, or uh, putting in, this symbol, uh, you know, in the symbols, but uh, this is someone who is somehow attracted to a uh, New York Yankee, um, uh, but also yearns uh, for the time when you were legally allowed to own other people. Um, and he also followed Mike Pompeo and retweeted him quite, quite a bit. So that's number two. Uh, those four defendants, so really, top ten list, I know, but it's hard to really separate them, and the attack itself is, is the worst, uh, second worst incident, in my opinion. Um, severity of Officer Fanon's uh, injuries are, are well documented, and uh, we wish him well. Uh, it's one of the worst acts of violence at the Capitol insurrection, and so his four attackers occupy the number two spot on the list. All right, first position, number one, Thomas Webster. Thomas Webster, age 54 of Goshen, New York. Webster is a former New York Police Department officer, shield number 13415, and a Marine veteran. So before he was identified, Webster was known online as the eye gouger. And so uh, here... I'll just play the, uh, the clip of the video uh, of the attack that uh, when he allegedly, it's on video, allegedly assaulted an officer. So that's Thomas Webster. That kind of tells you really all you need to know about him uh, and his personality and his ability to control himself and uh, restrain himself. So according to the charging documents, Webster used a flagpole to attack an officer and then charged the officer, pushing them to the ground where he ripped off the officer's gas mask and the officer's helmet strap was twisted in such a way as to restrict the airway. So the officer that Webster is uh, uh, allegedly attacking manages to get the uh, flagpole away from Webster, but as they're struggling, um, the officer is trying to, to get up off the ground, and Webster then attacks the officer's left eye in a gouging attack using both hands. So, um, yeah, we don't know. Now, we know that one officer lost an eye, uh, and, and we know that Thomas Webster... Uh, allegedly was gouging this officer's eyes. We don't know that they're the same officer, but certainly, you know, the possibility that it might be is one of the reasons why I chose uh, Thomas Webster to be number one on the list. 
Um, Webster owns a landscaping business, which is called Simplify Landscaping. And uh, he admitted to the FBI that he brought a handgun with him to D.C., but he claims he left the gun at the hotel. The government's charging document says, well, if you look at his clothing, the ample places is a revolver uh, where he could have hidden that weapon. He also wore a bulletproof vest that had been issued by the New York Police Department. So you, this guy's taking government property. Uh, he no longer works at the NYPD. Why this is his vest? Who knows? I guess you get to keep it after you're retired. Um, and he takes it to D.C. Now, his attorney claimed at first that Webster had been struck by the officer who had assaulted him. Um, who, you know, but that's not what the video shows. Um, and Judge Mehta, actually, who's the judge in his case in many of these cases, called the attorney on that. He's like, no, the video shows um, that, you know, the, the officer in the body cam footage, um, and that's actually the, where the audio that we heard came from, um, is, you know, just kind of standing there, right? Um, and, you know, is uh, maybe getting ready to spray the crowd or something, or maybe, you know, uh, but um, Webster just kind of comes out from nowhere. From the back of the crowd, there's some other guy ranting about something, and uh, Webster just starts uh, lambasting um, this officer. So, uh, as his backup line, the attorney claimed that Webster was acting, quote, to protect the innocent because the police had deployed tear gas against the mob. But the video doesn't show that either. It just shows Webster charging out of nowhere, calling the officer a commie and swearing at the officer and then launching an unprovoked attack. So, if this is how Thomas Webster conducts himself at what his attorney acclaims, this is his very first political demonstration, then perhaps someone at the NYPD should look into any complaints that they may have received against Webster during his time on the force there. Um, the NYPD only created a searchable online database for the public in March of 2001, sorry, 2021, and I did check it, says the CCRB, uh, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, um, but the database itself doesn't include all kinds of complaints or complaints before 2000. Um, so there, you know, there weren't any uh, that I could find anyway. But it doesn't mean perhaps there was one that was, you know, unsubstantiated uh, and isn't uh, in the database. So if Webster's conduct on January 6th represents how NYPD officers conduct themselves, they might want to look into that because this is a deeply troubled man, and it's hard to believe that this suddenly is becomes who he is uh, he has issues controlling his anger and his violent behavior evident in the video footage uh and his alleged assault so at 54 years old you might expect professionalism you might expect some measure of self-control but webster as it stands stands as a rebuke to his entire department and law enforcement in america generally um i think Perhaps aware of this, the uh, NYPD Police Benevolent Association, uh, trying to manage public perception, uh, perhaps also of genuine sentiment, uh, issued a rather unusual tweet regarding Webster's accusations. Quote, this was a disgusting assault on our Capitol Police brothers and sisters, on our government, and on everything that NYC police officers stand for. Even worse, the suspect ones who wore our uniform." Justice must be swift and severe, end quote. So Webster faces seven charges. And again, just the aggregate number of charges didn't find all that useful, right? So um, 
one of the defendants I, I looked at, uh, you know, faces like 13 charges, but, you know, essentially just a couple of, you know, not as serious as this attack. It just, you know, little things like, well, you pick up the baton, you, you know, you went into the capital, other, other things. Webster's facing seven charges, uh, but this, you know, apparently unprovoked assault, uh, my mind ranks as one of the worst things. Also, because again, this is a police officer assaulting another police officer, and he ought to know better. He doesn't even make an attempt to uh, cover his face, as many of the other defendants uh, do. Also, one of the things that I believe qualifies him for number one spot on the list, incredibly, Thomas Webster has been released from pretrial detention. Now, I know for correctional workers, uh, for wardens, having a, uh, a police officer uh, in your facility is already a problem. Uh, they have to make special arrangements uh, to secure that person. Nonetheless, uh, arguably, this amount of impulsiveness that is displayed, um, you know, for a man his age uh, and his, his profession, you know, it should be disqualifying, right? This is someone, I believe, who poses a, a danger to the community. Uh, he traveled all the way from New York City to D.C., wearing a bulletproof vest, bringing an officer. Uh, he assaults, allegedly, officers. And uh, he tried to gouge an officer's eyes out. So, to me, that seems inexcusable. And the fact that he has spent a career in law enforcement uh, really doesn't mitigate the risk he poses to the community. In fact, it, it makes it worse, in my mind. Um, he served on the detail that protects City Hall in New York, which is you know, the, exactly the city-level equivalent of the uh, Capitol Police. So he should know that what he's done is legally indefensible. What he's accused of doing, legally indefensible. So Judge Maida, the federal magistrate judge presiding over the Webster case, and again, many other cases, described his conduct as, quote, some of the worst behavior, some of the most assaultive conduct that I've seen. And in the United States today, I think we should hold law enforcement to a higher standard, certainly than what we see in the video of Webster's attack on the Capitol Police. Um, or was it MPP? <laughs> Not sure. But on, on law enforcement that day, um, law enforcement shouldn't be permitted to engage in civil disorder. It should go without saying. It's ridiculous that you have to say this. Um, shouldn't be attacking other officers and they certainly shouldn't be permitted to travel to the nation's capital to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. Again, this is something that happens supposedly in other countries, right? Where civil and military authorities will engage in this kind of behavior. So the system failed to protect the community and its decision not to detain Webster, a man who appears to have engaged in an entirely unprovoked assault against a federal officer. So that's my top 10, really my top 17 of the worst allegations of violence against defendants charged in the Capitol insurrection so far. Now, I realize that this week's episode is rather subjective, so if you have a question or comment, please send the show a message at CapInsurrep on Twitter, at C-A-P-I-N-S-U-R-R-E-P on Twitter. Next week's episode, we will catch up on some news, and I will return to a theme I promised to engage in in the very first episode which is what the Capitol insurrection tells us about the relationship between political elites and mass publics in the 21st century. Please subscribe, recommend the show to your friends, and rate. I'm Scott Kuhn, and thanks for your support.